Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. We haven't even done anything. We've I know. Done. I like it. Yeah, this is pretty much the high point of the evening. <laughs> yeah. It's all downhill yeah. from here. Thanks a lot. You've been a great audience. We appreciate it. <laughs> well, let's get started. Coming to you from the Toby Family Auditorium at the Commonwealth Club, it's week to week, the political roundtable for Wednesday, April 10th, 2019. And if my math is correct, this is the 125th week to week program we've done. So thank you for joining us tonight and not getting sick of us yet. Um, so this week, uh, comedian Chelsea Handler bade a fond farewell to the departing Homeland Security Secretary, Christian Nielsen. Handler tweeted, quote, Best of luck to Christian Nielsen. I'm not sure where you'll get hired with a resume that includes locking kids in cages. Just kidding. Good luck at Fox News. <laughs> so. I'm John Zipper, your host for Week to Week. And on tonight's program, we are going to discuss the administration's dramatic immigration uh, moves this week, the struggle over the Mueller report, local Congressman Eric Swalwell entering the 2020 race, the housing battle heats up locally, and more. And of course, we'll send you off with our live news quiz and chocolate giveaway. Um, everyone's welcome at the Commonwealth Club. So any opinions that are expressed up here are those solely of the speakers and not of the Commonwealth Club. Now let's meet our panelists for today. Actually, you know them all. I'll start at the far end of the stage with Bob Butler, a reporter for KCBS Radio. You can follow him on Twitter at Bob Butler Seven. Next to him is Marisa Lagos, a reporter with Cal- of the California Politics and Government Desk at KQED News. She's on Twitter at MLagos. And next to me is C.W. Nevius, a.k.a. Chuck Nevius, a columnist for the Santa Rosa Press Democrat, of course, a longtime former San Francisco Chronicle columnist, and on Twitter at C.W. Nevius. Welcome back. You all know how we do this. There are question cards spread throughout the room. Write down some questions, challenge us, and uh, someone will collect the questions, bring them up to me, and I will read them. So let's start off with immigration. It's been almost an hourly uh, uh, matter this past few days of big things happening, people leaving. Um, a lot has happened. Uh, a court struck down a Trump administration plan to force asylum seekers to stay in Mexico while their cases were b- awaiting a hearing. The Secretary of Homeland Security was forced out, or in Washington speak, resigned. Uh, the Secret Service Chief, Randolph L. Ells, I'm not sure, Alice? Ells, I think. Ells, mm-hmm. uh, he resigned. Uh, the president dropped the nomination, or pre-resigned, his candidate <laughs> to head ICE. That's the current, well, had been the acting executive ICE, of ICE, but now he's resigned. Um, and reportedly the head of the U.S. Uh, Citizenship and Immigration Service and the general counsel for the Homeland Security Department are also both being forced out. So, <clears throat> who says Trump doesn't create jobs? <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> it's workforce mobility. But he only um, hires the best people. He does. But uh, Marisa, let's start with you. I mean, what, what do you make of kind of a whirlwind of, of, of change? And do you think we're going to see different policy coming out of this or what? I mean, the problem for Trump, right, is that he has proposed a series of, I mean, like, let's say Kirsten Nielsen or Kirsten Nielsen. I'm still a little unclear on oh, how to Ms. say her Nielsen. name. Former Secretary Nielsen. Um so, you know, I think people in San Francisco think of her as the woman that locked up kids in cages and defended that policy. But apparently behind the scenes, she was the one saying, this is a terrible idea. We will never win in court. Um, so 
I think one that tells you the direction they're going in. Like if she's not tough enough, then who is? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the thing is that the president wants to institute an immigration policy, much like we saw with his sort of bucking of Congress um, over the what, wall. The wall. So yeah. I was like, what was the other thing? <laughs> the wall. Um, that like it flies in the face of the sort of both political and legal reality in this country. If you want to rewrite immigration laws, you got to go to Congress. Um, they have not had any, you know, success there, even when they had both houses. And so I think that this is like the Stephen Miller takeover of DHS. But I think, again, which could be really bad for a lot of people seeking asylum in the short term. I think long term, they will continue to run into the same problems. But um, it's not good when, like, yeah, the people that, like, the guy from ICE who, like, this, this is not, you know, this is not Nancy Pelosi being asked to run ICE, right? Like these are these are pretty hardcore um, immigration hawks, and they're not strong enough for Trump. So, good luck, I guess, would be my two cents there, and <laughs> maybe just make Stephen Miller the emperor of that, and see how that goes. I don't know. Well, let's talk about that. I mean, Chuck. Uh, I mean, Stephen Miller has been the through line, the connection between a lot of these things, and there's been a lot of reporting about how. His influence is now the major influence on Donald Trump, uh, or, or maybe turn it another way, President Trump is taking his advice over even Jared Kushner, who apparently is kind of on the outs, at least as far as immigration and border issues are concerned. Um, good thing? Bad thing? <laughs> well, well I, I'm just struck by what an odd group of people uh, Donald Trump surrounds himself with. And Stephen Miller is almost cartoonish in his... His anti-immigrant, he's screaming and yelling and carrying on about these things. This Roger Stone, I mean, he does look like a cartoon. These are some of his closest advisors. You know, Colbert said that uh, Kirsten Nielsen uh, was going to resign to devote more time to splitting up her own family. So, <laughs> <laughs> but, Apparently her, her allies are like, did you see that story, working on like rehabbing her image rehab so her. she can get a job after this? Because, yes. you know, I just, to your point. Uh, yes. Immigration-wise... The, the one thing I think is that we Trump can't cl- continue to claim that the immigrants are causing crime because we've seen the statistics and they commit crime at lower levels than people who are here. And white supremacists commit more, wor- more, more murders. So that's not on the books. Uh, it is also the case that we had millions of immigrants in this country working, and many of those industries were delighted to have them and want them back and are now suffering because they're not there. So that's the country isn't full, and they're not causing crime, and that leaves just one thing. Trump doesn't like people of color, and that's what we're running on, and that is an ugly thought for this country, I think. It's just... Bob? It's an ugly thought, but it's the reality. Um, you know, I'm in the midst of judging a bunch of awards. I think it's the New American Media Awards, an awards contest, and there's 36 entries, and I think... Probably 30 of them are on immigration. And I watched the piece today, which was so powerful. It was, they followed an immigrant family that comes into the United States. Uh, they're in, living in the United States. The kids are citizens, but the old family works in the fields. Um, and it was so powerful. And right now it's my favorite. Mm-hmm. But the problem I, that you have with this is that, and one of the stories I read said something that I've always, I've always felt this way. The same people, whose ancestors were, were ridiculed, um, vilified, attacked, are now attacking uh, Latinos and Muslims. And I think that tells me they don't know what this country is about. Um, and 
if they don't know what this country is about, if they don't, if, if, if Stephen Miller does not acknowledge his, I think he was his grandmother who couldn't speak English, who came to the United States, um, then we have a problem and we have a problem. And I'm not sure what's going to solve it, but you know, this is an election issue for the president. He wants to be hard line on immigration. Um, and I think when you look at what is his platform going to be in 2020, it's going to be immigration. Right. And he's going to say, we're keeping these bad people out of the country. And I hate to say it, his base is too damn stupid to understand they're lying to him. He's lying to him. Although well, in 2016, it did not work. And 2018. 2018. Yeah, 2018. But his, but his base still stuck with him. Well, it's right. just that everybody else... But as as Mitch McConnell and other people are saying, th- this is not a winner for us. No. You can, you but can he's make not this, You can make this go if you want, but it's not... It's yeah, not but, a winner for... Congress, congressional Republicans, but it continues to be a winner for Trump. And I think that is why Stephen Miller retains the influence he does. Trump knows he is speaking to the base, the 30 to 40 percent that will 30, not abandon him. 30, 30 percent. 30 percent. Yeah. We'll go with 30. All right. Yeah. <laughs> but the reason why it didn't work for them in 2018 is because the 70 percent that is opposed to the came out and voted. And that's the only thing that's going to save this country if you think it needs to be saved in 2020. Well, and did that 70% come out over the immigration issue? No. No, it was the health care. Right. But Uh, they also did not like the immigration policies either. Well, um, and I've said this before, uh, Rick Wilson is a very anti-Trump Republican strategist. And when when he was here at the club, he was kind of cautioning Democrats that immigration is not your key to getting the Hispanic vote, for example, right. which had been bandied about. He was saying, when, when you do the polling with Hispanic voters, I, th- I think he said, like, the top two issues were, like, health care and jobs or education, right. something like that. And, yeah, immigration's in there, but it's not one of the top things. Um, and there are other voices, if I could. Uh, Andrew Sullivan, a another anti-Trump conservative, um, is, is saying, actually, Democrats shouldn't totally downplay the idea that there's and there's not a crisis mm-hmm. at the border. Right. There is, what is it, 100,000 uh, migrants who were turned away in March alone. Right. And I mean, there's there's a huge issue there. there are, they can have they they could have a big debate over how best to deal with this. Right. But I'm not sure, or at least these people are these critics of the Democrats are saying you're not by by saying there's not a crisis there, there's not an emergency at all. Um, that's Going, that's the kind of thing that some voters are going to be saying, look, I can see with my own eyes. Right. Well, the, the Democrats are saying there's an emergency, but it was caused by the administration. Um, but you have to ask yourself, why are so many people coming to this country to seek asylum? What is so bad where they live? And I don't think that's the issue we're not dealing with. So the president's solution to that problem is cutting off aid to these countries, which that's not going to work. And, and you know, let me just say, and this is a personal i have i don't have any evidence of this but then we don't need evidence anymore to say things um who who creates these caravans i would not be at all surprised if you find somebody that voted for trump that's putting the money up for these caravans because it gives them a great issue to talk about all right i put it out there okay <laughs> Caravan like I said, I got no evidence. Okay. Bob okay. But, you know, I'm just wondering. That, I mean. That's where we say the opinions expressed. <laughs> um, okay, let's let's move on. Well, actually, a couple questions from the audience. But this is on. so uplifting and fun. I mean, mm-hmm. why can't we keep talking about this? <laughs> well, here, this will allow you to pontificate. What is an appropriate immigration policy? I mean, 
Right now, even, I mean, even, you know, I said, oh, they could have a debate on that. I mean, they're not going to have a debate. Well, this is the problem, though. Like, I think in the past we couldn't get to anything because there were some differences. There was a lack of political will. Um, I mean, let's put it out there. Like, Obama punted on this issue, right? This was not something that we've seen either Democrats or Republicans really take up. I mean, Bush tried to some extent. But... If you see what Trump has done to the Republican Party, I'm not sure there is a compromise to be had now because one side is saying immigration is not a bad thing inherently. You know, we can we need to figure out a legal system for people to come here. We need to respect international laws around asylum. Um, and and the other side is saying immigrants are bad and we don't. And, and the problem is there are too many people coming into this country. And so when you have that binary situation, like I feel like in some ways we've moved even further than the last 25 years of a lack of, mm-hmm. you know, and I don't think that all Republicans feel like that, but that is who is sort of running the party right now. Um, and so I really don't see a world in which any movement will happen unless one party takes control of both houses and, and the presidency. You, you mentioned uh, George Bush <clears throat> and he recently gave a speech or I think it was at a naturalization ceremony for immigrants mm-hmm. and very specifically pointed out, you know, the strength that immigrants give to the country. Yeah, I mean, and he made efforts. Um, probably well, not the favorite person of a lot of people here, but, you know, hindsight. He's looking better and better. Let me uh, just yeah, he sure is. But, you know, there, there, there is a reason why this issue has languished for so many years. Um, think about who owns agriculture. For the most part, it's Republicans. You know, the big money, the big farms and everything, and... and they can't find Americans to pick the food. Americans aren't going to do that kind of work. So they have to depend on something. I think the problem is, is that when you have people who are in this country doing this kind of work for 10, 15, 20, 25 years, and they have no path to citizenship, that's just, that's just stupid. Some of these people are really upstanding members of the, of, of the country. Some of them own businesses, but they aren't allowed to become citizens. And now you have people that own a business, they have American kids, they got an American wife, but when they were 16, they got caught smoking a joint. See you later. That's just insane. I'm going to have a Bob Butler moment where you, where you say I thought you were going to be the Bob Butler of tonight. But Bob that, no, I'm going to have a Bob Butler moment. <laughs> I'm not sure that this wasn't working pretty well before all along. We've been, we have been enormous number of people coming to the country. Again, they're getting employment. Uh, they're helping industries. And it's not just farm workers. Right. It's Construction is huge. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're making three to four... Restaurants is another big one. They're making three to four times what they could in another country where conditions are terrible. But were, were all of us screaming bloody murder that they were taking our jobs? Because I don't think they are. And were they committing crimes? Because it didn't seem like that's the case. And we ginned this up about all these murderers and rapists coming into the country. Well, we, we didn't gin this up. Exactly. So what I'm saying is, I'm not, I'm not sure it isn't a created problem. We certainly need to work on a path to citizenship. We certainly need to work for the dreamers. We've got all this, I think the American people would say that's not a bad idea, but we've become so emotionally entangled in this thing, and I'm not sure it was that big a problem to start with. We weren't doing a pretty good job. 
Maybe not a great job. Maybe we can improve it. But a pretty good job of handling immigrants. Well, and it goes in waves. I mean, remember the crisis over unaccompanied minors during the Obama administration? Mm-hmm. I mean, this, and, and to Bob's earlier point, it's largely because of what's happening in other countries. Um, you know, our governor went down to El Salvador to see what was really happening Someone down there. Someone asked about that, yeah. Um, and, you know, which... <laughs> No, dude, I, I mean, there, there is use in these fact-finding missions. I think there's a lot of critics of Newsom who say there's a lot of problems back home. <clears throat> pg which we will talk about later. Um, so wait, are you saying, some people are saying photos of him listening at someone's kitchen table to their stories in El Was Salvador. political? Yeah. Yeah. No. I've, heard, I've no. heard that. I'm not just picking on Donald Trump. Um, well, he did say that it, it's over for business, that you can build hotels along the coast and stuff now. What does that sound like? You know what? Marisa said we needed something more uplifting. So let's go to a topic that has less, there's less consternation about it, less anger. It's the Mueller report. (laughs) (laughs) So this is actually our first time on Week to Week that we've had an opportunity to talk about it because Robert Mueller very inconsiderately dropped it like right after our previous program. Thanks, Bob. Um, and luckily, not much has happened because we don't know anything more about it now than we did then. <laughs> I know. I went to Mexico for a week, came back, nothing. Nothing. Nothing happened. Well, now, Bill Barr, the attorney general, says he'll release the redacted report within a week. Democrats, such as Nancy Pelosi, are saying they don't trust him and that he should show them the full report. So do you see any way that there will be general trust in that we're actually learning the general uh, contents of this report. From Barr? Yeah. No. And I think because of the circumstances, how he got the job, and we're told, because of the, the long letter he wrote, basically saying the president can't be charged with obstruction, the things that he has done to get the job, and then not, even during his confirmation, not saying, yes, I'll make sure that you get the report, I'll give you as much as I can. Well, that's a dodge because he decides what you're going to see. And for Mueller to spend two years and his team spending two years collecting information and the collusion was always going to be a a problematic thing to prove because I just think the administration was too stupid to know how to collude with the Russians. But (laughs) the obstruction is out and was out in plain sight. And for him to say that there was no obstruction from Barr to say that. You know, I just don't see that that's possible. So he says he will release a redacted report. The redactions are going to be the problem. It'll end up in court. But it is, if you listen, I mean, he's been testifying on Capitol Hill the last two days, and I didn't tune in for every second. But the way he's framing some of this is sort of changing, and it's interesting. And I think it'll be fascinating to see. I mean, Democrats have subpoena power in the House, right? Um I think he'll put out the redacted report. I think they'll still pursue the full report, um, which, you know, regardless of party, I think they absolutely should. I think Republicans would do no less, literally. Um, and I think it'll be an ongoing fight. I actually think that some of the stuff he said today about uh, Trump having... Um, uh, spying. This, yeah, the spying about the campaign. Like, to me, that's even more troubling in some ways because it's sort of like, I think the problem Democrats have with the way this is rolled out is that when you put out the four page memo and not the actual report, you sort of cement in public opinion what that report says. Certainly the president is claiming victory. Um, it sounds like the report's a lot more complicated than that. And like so 400 pages more. Yeah. 10 yep. times more, 100 times more, whatever. More. Um, 
And so I think that that's really what they're up against. I mean, personally, I, I think that from a political standpoint, you know, back to the immigration versus healthcare debate, I think there's probably more to find in his taxes than there might be in that report because he's done so much of this in plain sight and we sort of know, and I think people are pretty entrenched on how they feel about that. Um, I think that the conflicts of interest are sort of more fruitful path for Democrats to go down and one that's going to be eminently fascinating to watch since the Treasury just today, I think, said they are not going to give those tax returns over by the, to Dems by the deadline. By the deadline. By the deadline. Yeah, it, was, still, but without a fight, basically. They're still thinking it over. Right. Yeah. And they have consulted with the White House. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think we'll probably get most of the report at some point, or at least so. Democrats will in so. Congress, but what does that mean for public opinion? Like, it's fully baked at this point. Well, I thought um, Mayor Pete from South Bend. Pete, Buttigieg. Pete, Buttigieg. 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 I practiced that a lot before. I, I did, too. Me, too. I've, I've been saying it all out in my bathroom mirror. Um, he said the other day, you know, we're, we keep looking for this thing. It's going to show up in the Mueller report someplace else. It's going to be so horrible. People are going to be like, oh, my God. And he said, you know, we've seen a lot of horrible things already. And a lot of those people that support him are not moved. And the chances that something's going to come out of the Mueller report, and they're all going to go, oh, you're I, I, far better to concentrate on policies that can, like, med- like Medicare, like health care, that can move the Democratic Party forward. And I really think that if you have someone that you think is incompetent, and I think he, the president is incompetent, rather than try to trip him up, I think you're better to step aside and let him demonstrate how incompetent he is. And I think he's doing it. Mm-hmm. So I and 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 I've heard several people say, and I agree. You can impeach. You can go ahead and go impeachment if you want. But even if it's successful, forty-two percent of people are going to say that was a political stunt. It's far better to beat him in twenty twenty at the ballot box. Yeah, that's what uh, that's what Comey said. Mm-hmm. They don't want to see impeachment. The best thing to do was to vote him out. But personally, I'd love to see him get his wall in Texas. And see him do eminent domain on people <laughs> along the border and on see how border, that yeah. goes over. Yeah. I mean, right. I mean, I think that should be Democrats argument for closing the border. You know, when you should do that, October 15th, 2020, <laughs> close the border. Like, uh, I mean, it, it, it is, but I, I think it's funny. I heard that, um, I can't remember who said this from the New York Times, but that that's basically Maggie Haberman's strategy for interviewing him. Mm-hmm. Like, don't fight back. Just give hands a rope. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's something we all know from interviewing politicians. Yeah. <laughs> Not just Trump. <laughs> sometimes, well that, but, but sometimes you just let them go. But that's the one thing that, that does bother me about the White House press corps. And I was in Vegas yesterday, and there was a forum beyond the briefing room. And it had uh, Michelle Sindor, uh, Stephen Portnoy, Hallie Jackson, and um, Cecilia Vega from ABC. And they were talking about what happens covering White House and, and how insane it is. And, you know, um, Elsender said, I used to cover hurricanes and things, but I thought when I got this job, it would be like nine to five, Monday through Friday. Well, not, not hardly. But the one thing that, that, um, Jackson said is that, you know, the president has gone from saying fake news is the enemy of the people in reporters, fake news, enemy of the people to now all news is the enemy of the people. And that's what his base believes. That any kind of news, if I don't hear it from the president, it's not true. He's been very effective in doing that. And, you know, I, I cringe to think of five more years of that. Okay. Um, so we did not succeed on the, the uplifting moon. part. 
Okay. We got some laughs. The next yeah. topic, wow. though. They're sort of the like. The next topic is local boy makes good. Eric Swalwell, an East Bay <laughs> congressman, uh, is entering the 2020 Democratic presidential primary. That's either good news or bad news, depending on how you feel. Who's not entering? Who's not entering? Swalwell. Sorry? Yeah. Who's not entering the race? You guys heard it here first. I'm running for president. There you go. <laughs> My husband's like, shit. <laughs> <laughs> I think you can say that. Presumably. Sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> I think that's one of the people. From the radio reporter. Like, like, I'm sorry. Yes, you know, the radio reporter. <laughs> the one who said this. I think that's one of those PBS bad words. Um, you know? Well, uh, let's talk a bit about Eric Swalwell. I mean, he's he's 38 years. <laughs> well, actually, yes. The New York Times headline was, uh, Eric Swalwell is running for president. Who is he? Cool. Yeah. That was their headline. Um Bob, let's start with you. I mean, what does he bring to the race? What, do you know what? Josh Richmond. He, Josh Richmond. Josh Richmond. <laughs> His flack, yeah. former Former colleague, former colleague of mine on the Chauncey Bailey Project, Josh Richmond. Mm-hmm. Um, what he brings to the table is what everybody else brings to the table. Uh, he doesn't like Trump. I think that's the main thing. I mean, I was looking at one of the, the I think it was the Times talking about him, said his claim to fame is he's spent a lot of time on cable news, which he has on CNN, on MSNBC. I'm not sure he's been on Fox. Um, he has? Okay, good. But, but, but Swalwell, a former prosecutor in Alameda County, um, you know, so he's a lawyer. He's a prosecutor, which means he knows how to ask good questions, and you would think that he's logical. So I think that's one thing. But then you have other people that, Kamala Harris is also a former prosecutor. So I don't know how he's going to stand out from the crowd. And when you have this many people, I've been maybe as many as 20 people running for president on the Democratic uh, ticket. Um, Those I debates mean, are going to be... It's going to be insane. It's going to be as bad as... I mean, I was over in Rwanda back in 2015 talking about the, the Republican uh, primary and the fact there were 17 candidates and how insane it was. This is going to be even more insane. Yeah. Then you, then you got the Bernie, you know, the Bernie supporters who are, who are still rabid. So I'm not sure how that's going to work. You haven't seen, huh? Yeah, I mean, I, I covered him when he was here uh, a couple of weeks ago, and it's like you know, the Bernie supporters look at him the way the Trump supporters look at Trump. I mean, like with stars in their eyes. I mean, this is our guy, and and you better not cheat him this time because it'll be really. It's like it's it's, it's scary. Chuck, uh, Swalwell is 38, which would make him young, but he's already lost the youngster vote to Pete <laughs> Buttigieg. Buttigieg. Buttigieg, yeah. Uh, who is just 37. <laughs> um, I mean, is Swalwell just kind of one of the ones at the kids' table? And, I mean, Pete Buttigieg is getting huge, I mean, fantastic. He's, like, he's probably getting he's, the best He is right definitely, now, right? ha- he's having a moment. There isn't any question about it. And that... <laughs> And that's why the Swalwells of the world get into the race is who knows? Maybe I'll catch fire. Maybe I'll, I'll get lightning in a bottle and get this thing going. Um, why did for, he wait so long? Well, exactly. And I think he's been I think a, up for this for a year. A case can be made. He's already too late. Yeah. You know, we've already got Kamala Harris in California. Right. We've already got front runners in, in, in people like Biden who hasn't declared yet and Bernie Sanders and so forth. Why wait for that? Two things. First of all, God bless him for running. It's not easy. You're putting yourself out there. He may be a little ahead of his time. I have to say I was not set on fire by his speeches, but maybe he'll... And he has an issue, and his issue is gun control. And I think he feels like that he can ride that hard. And again, God bless him for that. We'd like to see more gun control. So if nothing else, hopefully, 
He can push the issue. Maybe he builds his his brand a little bit, mm-hmm. and it goes from there. But I f- find it to be a quixotic idea. Yeah, I mean, I think he's super smart and very impressive. Um, you know, to be fair, I think his real claim to fame is unseating Pete Stark, mm-hmm. who was a congressman before he was even born in that seat, and who really was not doing his district a lot of good at the end. And I think that, you know, Swalwell took him on and it was an uphill battle and he won. Um, but yeah, I, I'm, you know, I interviewed him, God, last July or August and we knew that this was potentially happening. And I am sort of shocked that he, he waited until after the first quarter of fundraising. Maybe that's a strategy. I don't know. Um, but I think, yeah, I think it's going to be, um, if you're going to do it, get yeah. in and do it. Yeah. Right. right. And so, and I think, I mean, what is interesting to me is like a week after, a couple of weeks after Judge announced, we interviewed him on Political Breakdown and you were like, and he's impressive. I mean, there's a reason this guy is raising the money he is and getting the endorsements and, and, and polling as well. But again, you know, he's the mayor of South Bend, Indiana. Like there's more people in like the 10 blocks around here than in that city. Um, and, he, and so... It's been impressive to me to watch him, but you also still think that for him it's an uphill climb. And so even like to the nth degree for someone like Swalwell, given like if Kamala wasn't running, I think it would actually be a very different calculation because maybe you could capture Mm -hmm. both the donors and the excitement in California. You know, I mean, there are two things to to point out here for any Californian, anybody who wants to run. Um, One is that we moved up our primary and we will be relevant. Our ballots will be going out, like, basically during Iowa caucuses. So the anybody who wants to play in California cannot ignore this state the way that they have in years past and just come and get donations. Um, and, you know, I think the second thing is that we are not a winner-take-all state in the Democratic primary. So you can not win California but still collect a fair amount of delegates the way Bernie did. That's a good point. And, you know, that is a calculation to be made. Again, if you look at the polls... Just like everywhere else, Biden and Bernie are way ahead of the pack. Kamala is coming in third, um, but she's not even winning her home state at this point. So, And it makes you wonder how the polls would go if Biden, if and when Biden does jump in. Right. I think I think the polls will change all of a sudden because people have, look, he's leading the polls. He's not even in the race yet. So what happens when he finally gets in? But do you think in? that'll go up or down? Because I, I think it can go both ways. You know what I mean? Like... I think some people, like, it's a lot easier to like the idea of somebody than That's when right. they're actually a candidate. That's what I was going to say. I think you like the concept of Biden, but once you get him on the campaign trail and listen to him a little bit, you'll say, haven't we heard this all before? Well, let's He's- talk about Biden. Um, and I'm reminded of, you remember the scene of George W. Bush giving Angela Merkel an unwanted <laughs> shoulder rub? Again, it seems so, like... Kind and gentle in hindsight. After kind, the last gentle, years and, and inappropriate. Well, yes. Um, totally inappropriate, yes. but like compared to the last two years of news. Well, what did you think about the whole, all of the, all? The, the, there were a number of women who came out and said, you know, yeah, that made me feel. You want me to answer that probably? Anyone. I'm not, I'm not putting you on the spot as a woman, but please do if you want. As a woman. Um, and then you can be like, as somebody with daughters. Um, <laughs> um, I have a wife. <laughs> Perfect. So here's my problem. I mean, A, it's creepy. Totally creepy. Uh, B, his initial reaction to it and then his after reactions to it have been terrible. And like, I, like, 
let's be clear. There is a continuum. Like, on one side are people who are, like, sexually assaulting people and doing really bad things. On the other hand, on the other side are people who are making women and, quite frankly, anybody feel uncomfortable. And, like, it's not okay. None of it's okay. Of course, one side's worse. But, like, to me... I felt like his initial reaction and then that video were just sort of out of touch and then the joking about it. And, you know, I've had this debate with men in my life who are like, eh, it's not a big deal. And I'm like, okay, but as a man, how would you feel if somebody, like, walked up behind you and started, like, massaging your shoulders and sniffing your hair? Like, it's it's not and a so, good feeling. And it should be pointed out, there are photos and probably video as well. Of him, of him doing, doing to, men. to men. as well. Totally. It's, he's yeah. Mr. Touchy-feely. Um, so, to me, it's like... Whatever. It's not the crime. It's the cover-up. It's not the crime. It's the, like, reaction to it, right? It's like, just own it, and you can move on. But I don't think he's owned it in a sufficient way, in my personal opinion. Well, I have a daughter. (laughs) (laughs) You know, the complaint with Biden was that he was a clueless older guy stuck in a past generation. And then this comes out, and he makes that joke the next day and reinforces the fact he's a clueless old white guy stuck in the wrong generation. You don't say that. That's, you don't say, Nancy Pelosi had it perfect. It's, it's not what you do, it's how it was received. And if it was received poorly, you're doing it wrong. And everybody's got the crazy... We have, there's a couple that we see sometimes socially, and this, this guy is very... Name names, Chuck. <laughs> <laughs> it's David and her husband. <laughs> no, it's not. Um... But he's very handsy, and my wife has asked me to stay, you know, stick around, stay close. And this is a guy from another generation, and you kind of roll your eyes, but it's also creepy, unpleasant, and inappropriate. And Joe, it's creepy, unpleasant, and inappropriate. Don't make a joke of it. It's not a joke. And that's why I think he's, the more you see of Joe Biden, I think he's a wonderful guy. He's had terrible tragedy in his life. I think he undercuts himself over and over with poor judgment in what he said. And I think that's going to be his problem. I can't disagree with that because you look at people who grew up in a different generation. I mean, looking around the room, looking at myself, you know, I mean, I'm not a spring chicken. And I grew up in an age where, you know, women were not listened to and they were subjected to this kind of treatment and women were just quiet about it. And it wasn't until the professor from Stanford, the medical, the doctor from Stanford, I forget her name, who came forward that this all of a sudden become a big issue, and I bet you, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I know there are women in this room that can say, yeah, yeah, that happened to me, and it was my boss, or it was this, you know, it was, you just had to deal with it. Well, you don't have to deal with it anymore. And, and I said Biden when he gets in, I think people are going to really, going to like him, but yes, this is the issue that could knock him out. I also want to say, like, I actually think, in a lot of ways, Joe Biden's bigger problems will be his extremely long record Mm -hmm. the world has changed dramatically in the past 30 years Mm -hmm. not just around the way you treat women and you know anita hill uh, anita hill right even before this came up anita hill Hill, um you know a lot of votes he took in congress glass steagall i mean there are a lot of things that the democratic party was 20 or 30 years ago that it no longer is and i think in the age of bernie and warren and harris and medicare for all is a rallying cry even if he embraces a lot of those progressive policies the questions about his record to me are the more substantive sort of concerns about whether he's the best person in this race and i think that for democrats you know there's this sort of and I wouldn't argue it's totally binary, but this debate happening about, you know, do we try to get white working class voters back or do we try to, you know, 
get voter turnout in uh, among millennials and people of color. Um, I think they should probably try to do both by being good candidates. Mm -hmm. But I think that like, if you look at, you know, even the people that lost, but made huge inroads like Beto and Stacey Abrams, Andrew Gillum, that was by actually getting new voters out. And that to me seems like a better path than sort of the well-trodden one. Yeah. And I think the number of times that I've been here, you'll be my test control group. Uh, for the most part, none of us are especially millennial age, mm-hmm. but often I'm we will say in this, wouldn't you like to see a fresh face in the Democrat? And, and overwhelmingly, we get nods. People say, yes, let's see someone new. Let's see someone new. And I think Biden's going to run up against that, plus his record, plus his tendency to put his foot in his mouth. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for one of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at CommonwealthClub.org. Now, back to our program. Well, it appears with Kamala Harris that the opposition to her is is pushing uh, issues regarding her prosecutorial past. Uh, you know, cases she did or did not pursue right. and, and such. Isaiah um, Spinoza. Yeah, and, 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 and well, I just wonder how effective that's going to be. She's, she's, an impressive, she's an impressive speaker. She's a forceful person. I think people like to see that. And she, she made decisions. She didn't go for the death penalty in the, in the case here in San Francisco. Uh, now Gavin Newsom has said we're not going to do, we're going to enforce the death penalty. I don't think that's a, I don't think that's something that's going to knock her out. But, but it does reflect the fact that someone is worried about her and is trying to undercut her as, as best they can. Um, yeah, I've heard that the attorney general's office has like 200 pending, uh, public records public requests, records request. not just from journalists, from oppo researchers, like everything, you know, they're trying to dig up everything. I mean, the thing about Kamala as someone who's covered her basically since the beginning of her career is I don't know that they're going to find a lot because I think her biggest liability is her lack of like sticking her neck out, right? She has been so cautious her whole career. And I think we've seen a new Kamala in Congress. And as someone who's known her for this long, my question is, well, which one is it? Is it going to be the AG who lets the feds prosecute Mm -hmm. Mm PG&E? Or is it going to be the person that we see, you know, at the Kavanaugh hearings? Making Jeff Sessions nervous. Exactly. And I think, you know... That may not, none of that may matter for people in North Carolina, South Carolina, you know, the places that she's really banking on. Mm-hmm. Um, we may be too close to it. Because <laughs> yeah. every story that comes out about her, I'm like, oh, that's a story? Like, we all knew that. Well, well that's <laughs> the thing. I mean, there's not a lot of controversy. I mean, even the Isaac Espinoza uh, prosecution, where she said she would not go for the death penalty, some people said she was being, she was being cowardly, but I think she was being pragmatic. Can you imagine a San Francisco jury giving someone the death penalty? No, and she had run saying she wouldn't pursue yeah. it. Right, but even 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 saying that, you yeah. know, a San Francisco jury giving someone the death penalty, I, I just don't see it. So I think in that respect, I think she was pragmatic. Um, but, but the way that she, she, the name she's made for herself on Capitol Hill during these hearings, I mean, making Jeff Sessions say that he was nervous by her questions. And he's a former prosecutor. Why are you nervous? I mean, she's very effective when it comes to questioning people. Yeah. Well, he also looks like a Keebler elf. So I, I, <laughs> I think he had every reason to be nervous. Actually. I, yeah. 
on that note, uh, Marisa brought up PG&E. That should be off the record, I think. <laughs> Marisa brought up PG&E several times. no hold bar tonight. We've already Marisa brought up PG&E several times. Okay. Yeah. So uh, let's go to PG&E, Marisa. Oh, fun. Um, I mean... That's all I talk about normally. Well, PG&E so. and the wildfires, they've got a new head coming in yeah. uh, from the Tennessee uh, Valley Authority, uh, which I understand is he's quite controversial. No baggage, no baggage yeah. there. Um, of course, the bankruptcy uh, spurring le- local efforts, uh, such as here in San Francisco, for the city itself to ha- control its own energy, own it and control its own energy uh, system. So, Marisa, tell us what What's you've been diving on? into at work. Um, yeah, so the new CEO, I think, was a really interesting pick. Um, interesting in the sense that they didn't really seem to listen to the governor or anybody else in California um, and with the new board picks. Uh, this is a guy who ran the Tennessee Valley Authority, has overseen a cleanup where one of their contractors was recently found by a jury to have botched a cleanup on coal ash. Um, dozens of workers were killed actually died after this cleanup. Hundreds were sickened. Uh, the next phase of the trial hasn't happened, so it's not clear how much the authority itself will be held liable. But um, this guy, I mean, he's he's been very good at cutting costs at other utilities. Um, his other sort of claim to faint, well, two others. One is that when his company that he worked for for a long time and Duke Energy merged, he was actually CEO for one day and walked away with $44 million. I read which that. Which makes that, me feel like I am in the wrong business. How does that work yet again? exactly? I, I read that. That's That was striking. I don't know. Um, and then the other one was this weird case before that where in Florida they tried to rebuild a nuclear, the one nuclear power plant in Florida, Progress Energy, which he had run for a long time, said, we're not going to bring in an engineering firm. We're just going to do it ourselves. And they cracked some sort of concrete structure and the entire plant got decommissioned. So that's who PG&E picked. Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, so that's kind of one phase. And then the, the other side of things that I've been really looking at is what's happening in Sacramento. Um, given that PG&E is in bankruptcy, given that wildfire season is approaching, um, and I will not bore you with all of the sort of policy details that I'm in the weeds on, but I will say this. I think it's what's interesting to me is that everyone I talk to up there, and I've covered SAC for about 10 years, has never seen this many people from Wall Street walking the halls of the Capitol. Um, the ratings agencies, the investors, their lobbyists are all coming in and have made, I would say, a very concerted and successful effort to scare the living daylights out of the governor and legislature by saying basically that the other big utilities will end up in bankruptcy if you guys don't make some huge regulatory changes in California. Um, and so on Friday, the governor is expected to come out with what I had thought would maybe be like a set of proposals, but his office says will just be a menu of options for lawmakers to consider. A menu. Um, Very nice. Actually, they didn't say that exactly, oh. but they, they didn't dispute it when I characterized it. So anyway. <laughs> well, then you, so, they virtually said it. Gavin's going to come out and say, like, you know, here's the things we need to tackle. Here are some potential ideas. I'm not going to put my weight behind any of them because I don't want to piss anybody off yet um, and let the legislature kind of deal with it. But I think it's really interesting, and I will end on this note. PG&E stock has nearly tripled since they filed for bankruptcy, so... My free advice to you all is that they will probably end up smelling like roses after this whole thing, and your your bills will go up. So maybe buy some stock. Like <laughs> Bob, I mean PG and E has been a punching bag in the state for years. Well, this city especially. Right? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, that's what I would say. I, I came here in 1980. 
almost 40 years ago. And I have been hearing about how San Francisco is going to take over <laughs> its own power grid and run this thing. And I would just say, after roughly 20 years of covering City Hall, are you kidding me? You're going to run a power grid? I just find that... <laughs> <laughs> could do better than PG&E. Like it's <laughs> well, you got a low bar. Yeah, I have yeah. to admit, it's a low bar, but I just, out of, out of thin air, you're going to create a power grid. I just, I found it hard. Well, they're to not. They're going to try to buy Use the same, the, the same one. And solar. And, I mean, and the, you could say that the PUC is one of the more effective agencies in this town. Really? You can PUC? Say that. The, the Calif- uh, not the California, the, the SFPUC. The they one, make the, money. The, 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 one, the water. The one yeah. that really wouldn't do anything about PG&E blowing up San Bruno? No, well, I mean, no, 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 and that's the that's the state regulators. I'm talking about this the city, oh. the ones who run our water. Yeah, but yeah, the no, water, no, yeah. go on, go on about the CPUC. I like that's that. That's actually uh, great water, you know. Still <laughs> boggles my mind that they yeah. get it all the way down from them. Um, yeah. You know, funny thing about PG&E, um, probably 20, 30 years ago, I got an E-Trade account, and PG&E went into bankruptcy, and I bought some of its stock, and it's been one of the best stocks I ever bought. See, you know, See? but. Recently, I looked at it, and it was way down. So when you say it's tripled, I haven't well, looked in the last couple of days. So I, I can look at it. No, it, but what, what bothers me about it, a utility like PG&E, which has the monopoly on power. I mean, Alameda has its own power company, right? Um, I don't know how well it actually works. But I really got incensed with PG&E when I got solar. And I found out that they charged me one rate to sell me electricity and like a tenth of a rate to buy it when I have excess power coming out of my uh, my solar panels. So I'm not surprised at all that the governor wants to do something to kind of save PG&E. Um, but you would think that they would, should be paying through the nose for what happened, because especially once they've determined that it was their equipment that started the fire. Now, having said that, it, it's very difficult, you know, for heavy utility up in the mountains where people are living, mm. you know, in the middle of trees that dry out and grass that dries out during the during the summertime, so and who have built in places that that if PG and E had their druthers, would they, not, would, they would, would not, not have build. connected to. Yeah. Now they're defending PG. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Part no, I can salary. go both ways. Yeah. I, I, whiplash here. <laughs> Bob's just predicting his stock, that's, right? That's now, well, and let me say this he... about to Bob's point about like wanting to save them. The thing that has really vexed me the more I dig into this, because it's really easy to be like, yeah, PG&E, man. I pay these guys so much money. They keep burning down people's houses. They blew up San Bruno. I mean, I was there for that, too. Yeah. But then you have to look at, like, the reality of the way these things are structured. And the thing is, Wall Street will not take a bunch of hits and still back this company, which we rely on them to do. So guess who will end up paying for all of this? We will. We will. So there is a balancing act. It's not an easy question for the governor. Um, I think it's going to be really interesting to see the way he handles this and how he sort of goes at the political dynamics within the Capitol, which are, again, going to be really difficult because nobody wants to be seen as giving PG&E a handout. Very good. Um, let's talk about an issue that, in fact, touches us just down the street here, and that is housing. Uh, and affordability and homelessness. Um, in fact, just down the street, there yeah, is a stuff. very controversial uh, effort, yes, in a parking lot um, to build a navigation center. And for those of you listening or watching from out of the area, a navigation center is um, a little more high-touch homeless shelter that tries prides to bring in services and, and, and deal with mm-hmm. people a little bit better than kicking them out in the morning and, and such like that. Um, 
Chuck, this is Chuck. Done. Chuck, jump in. This Sound is your like district. Really? I've got uh, a little thing to say here. If you'll just stick with me, this to me seems like the perfect San Francisco story. Navigation centers are a good idea, and they're a good idea because they allow people to stay at the center with their belongings, sometimes with their dogs or pets, and with possibly their partner. So those are the major objections to why homeless people do not want to go to the shelter. They get kicked out every morning. They can't bring their belongings. They get ripped off. So navigation centers, good. Okay, this navigation center is going on uh, down here in the Barcadero, and there are some legitimate concerns. It's going to be twice the size of anything they've done before. District 6, where I live, and District 6, where this is, has an inordinate number of shelters and navigation centers. They've borne the brunt of the homeless, uh, homeless crisis. However, I would also, and that's why the neighbors are upset. They're afraid it's going to be a mess, and there's going to be, and why do we have to keep doing this? However, I would say there is not going to be a more security-conscious navigation center in San Francisco than this one, because we've already heard from the neighbors, and we know they're going to raise holy heck hmm. nice job. about this. <laughs> Thank you. So I, I don't have a problem with it. But what I think is funny is the neighbors who are being portrayed as elite wealthy people, some of whom they are, have raised a Go, with a GoFundMe account $94,000. And what they're trying to do is hire this attorney, Andrew Zacks, who's a landlord attorney, to fight the, the case. But there's another group who said, and, and this got a lot of attention in the, in the media, look how much money they've raised, look at how, how much, you know, these people are really serious about this. But there's another group who supports the Navigation Center, who said, oh yeah, you want to raise money, we can raise money, and Mark Benioff contributed $10,000, and they raised this enormous fund of 100 and... It was 163 last yeah. week. I, I had 43, but 63, yeah. <clears throat> so they raised more money. The only problem is, the neighbors have a reason to raise money because they, have to pay, they want to pay this attorney. There's no place for that money to go. All they're doing is raising more money to show, we're just waving our wallets and saying, oh yeah, you raised a lot of money? We raised a lot of money. So they said, well, what are you going to do with the money that you raised? And they said, we're going to give it to the Homeless Coalition, which is great for the Homeless Coalition because they've got nothing to do with this navigation center. <laughs> well, not, I mean, they've been they lobbying for they it. They didn't build it. They didn't design it. I guess they support it. They're innocent bystanders. They are standing next to the navigation center, and they come over and they hand them $163,000, which I am going to guess doubled their budget. Yeah. But, yeah. Right? And if that's not San Francisco in a nutshell, I don't know what is. <laughs> Jennifer, Jenny Friedenbach winning for once, right? I'll um, note that, that besides uh, Mark Benioff giving to the pro-navigation center group uh, or fund um, Jack Dorsey from Twitter also has donated to it. And if you remember when Mark oh, really? made a really big hmm. stake Shame, during the Prop C, uh, Prop C, yeah. whatever, right? mm-hmm. um, about raising more money for, tax, for uh, homeless services in the city, he specifically went after Jack Dorsey and said, what are you doing? You know, where are you putting him? So Jack Dorsey gave money to an account to no one. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect. <laughs> so I, it probably been three or four weeks ago, well, I did a story on this and I went down to the, the Embarcadero and I talked to, um, what is the place? Uh, Delancey Street? No, no, not Delancey, the, 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 the bar. Oh, Java. the Red Java, Red, Java, Java. Java Hut. You know, I talked to a bartender in there, and he made an interesting point. He said, look, you know, I walk from, from BART or from Unity to get over here, and the number of homeless people I see that could use a service like this, is, is, it, it's really needed. 
if they will use it. And that's been the issue, as Chuck mentioned, mm-hmm. is that a lot of people who are out on the streets, they don't want nothing to do with any kind of structured setting like the navigation center. Because as much as they hate being out there, they hate being inside and being told what to do even more. So that's going to be the challenge if they ever get this thing built. Um, it is a parking lot right now. It's at Harrison and the Embarcadero, for those who don't know where it's going to be. Um, great location. Lots of traffic. Plenty of opportunities to hold your sign out there when cars are waiting to get on the Bay Bridge. So, well, I, I'll bet if you talk to the people, there's a navigation center in, in the Mission. I'll bet if you talk to the people around there, they don't find it to be a big problem. I think the navigation center is a far better place for those street? people to be than in a tent on the sidewalk. You know, I just think that um, there are some restrictions, but not many. If you're in the navigation center, I, I think they find it to be a, a, a worthwhile alter, alternative, and they're willing to do it. It's just that we need to build enough of them that we can really make a difference. I, like I said, Matt Haney was the person who mentioned our, our supervisor in District 6, who's very progressive, said, I am concerned navigation centers up until now have been about 100 people. This is going to be over 200. I mean, is, are we, is that what we're going to do? It could be more difficult, but that's something we need to look at. Okay. Well, so that's a controversy down the street. There's another housing controversy that has pretty much got people across the state up in arms, um, including, of course, here in San Francisco, and that is the return of SB 827. Scott Weiner tried to get that bill passed last year. It is now back as SB 50. And this is a bill that would increase uh, density and height limits around, uh, within a certain distance, I think a half a mile, of transit stops and and, and, and major major jobs. jobs, Right. Um, Now, so he's made a number of changes to it, uh, including trying to deal with displacement fears and and, uh, types of property that that is categorized in certain ways and such. And there are a number of groups that had opposed the previous bill who are now in favor of it. Um, San Francisco's Board of Supervisors famously is not. (laughs) This is like only Scott Wiener can get like Orange County and San Francisco progressives to agree on something. (laughs) Um, It's pretty impressive. You know, like you got to give the guy credit. Uh, Yeah. I mean, this is going to be really fascinating to watch in the Capitol. So one thing that happened last year, this died in housing and governance. So the pro tem in her wisdom, I love this. This is like the most politic thing to do. So one of the big opponents is Marin to building basically anything. Um, so she split up these committees and gave Scott Weiner one of them and Mike McGuire of the North Bay the other. So the, the, the bill has to go through both committees. It already cleared housing because Scott Weiner's the chair. Um, but now he and McGuire have to work together. And I actually think, like, seriously, it's a pretty smart political move by her because yeah. you don't want something that, like, nobody in the suburbs can deal with. But you also want, I think, to force folks like that to actually get to the table instead of just killing these types of bills. Um, I also think it's very Scott. I mean, we've watched him for many years, right? So he came out last year, like guns blazing, just pissed off everybody. Like the Yimbies were mad. The NIMBYs were mad. Like everybody was mad about this bill because they felt like he hadn't, you know, talked to the affordable housing advocates. He hadn't talked to the runners coalitions that they, this was going to push out people. Like the idea being, if you build a bunch of transit, um, of high, density stuff around transit that everybody gets evicted because that's like a developer's dream. Um, and then on the other hand, of course, people in like suburban places were mad because they don't 
want more people living there, particularly potentially the people who might, you know, not look like them. Um, and so this time he's kind of got the left more on board, not all the left because San Francisco's the twilight zone. Um, but he's got a lot of the renter and affordable housing advocates and now he's kind of going up against the, 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 the suburban NIMBY folks. Um, and just, I just look forward to watching this because Scott is one of the few politicians I've ever covered who just doesn't care about not about like he doesn't care about good policy he cares deeply about it he is not concerned about personal attacks on him about being popular um he wants to get the policy through and so i just think it's going to be you know as as a dork somebody who watches sacramento like just an interesting debate to watch well and what do you think governor gavin newsom is going to do is he going to help or i think he'll wait for a while and see, see but, where the wind is blowing. No, yeah. more like how like how Scott handles this. I don't. I think his administration has a lot on their plate, and um, I don't think they've really figured out how to twist arms in the legislature yet. But I think, in principle, the governor is very much in support of this idea, and that's one of the reasons that Scott feels like he has a lot of wind at his back yeah. because you have a governor saying we need to build three and a half million homes or whatever. Yeah. And I love Gavin Newsom, but I think his his basic thought process is: Will this get me on the cover of Time Magazine or not? You know. Would it could. This, this might not. I don't think it will. Every housing expert agrees that what we're going to have to do is build denser housing near transportation centers and work and work hubs. And I think even the opponents realize that that's the case. And what I think they're saying is, you're right. We need to do this. Just, just don't. don't do just don't <laughs> you tell us how to do it. You know. And they're. They're playing the card that we're going to do it, but we're going to do it in our own time. It's going to take a lot, you know, a little longer, but we just need some more study and so forth. And what Scott Wiener is saying, and the reason he didn't talk to the people who were the opponents was they weren't awake at four in the morning when he was writing this thing. He's like a machine. This guy's incredible. He just does one thing after another. So I think it's, um, it's the right idea. I don't know if it's the right time, but it's very difficult to convince people that this is, uh, should be done through this at the state level. I think that's the yeah, real problem. local control. I asked him about this um, at another event. I said, so how are you going to convince people along Mission to increase the density there, which is already pretty mm-hmm. dense? How are you going to increase uh, density at near Civic Center BART or Powell Street BART? And he said, well, that's something we have to work on. Well, yeah, because these are major transit hubs. Uh, the Embarcadero, where are you going to put more dense housing along the Embarcadero, you know, at the Embarcadero Station or Montgomery Street? Yeah, but I don't think San Francisco's BART line is really the the major problem as he sees it, right? Yeah. We'd like to see something in the it's, Sunset in the Richmond, for example. And, yeah. And that's in, mm-hmm. that's, those are neighborhoods that do not want to have five-story Apartments or condominiums. Or Dublin and Pleasanton. We were talking specifically about San Francisco. He says we we have to do it here. We we need it. We we have, you know, so that'll be some. I mean, it's a, I mean, but that gets to the point of how difficult this is. Like, even in a dense urban city like this, you still have those concerns. So what happens when you go out to your old stomping grounds? And and some of the opposition within San Francisco uh, has been, Okay, so this is like a half mile around uh, these transit stops. Well, in San Francisco, that ends up That's being everything. almost the whole city, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. Because we've got, yeah. you know, the Muni, the BART, we've got... And we don't have a housing very... crisis here, so that, it's fine. Everything's right. fine. No, we have an affordable housing right. crisis here, right? That's right. No, okay, he, well... She's being a smart aleck. <laughs> um, I, we've got a number of questions here from the audience, and I really have to say, 
I have terrible handwriting sitting at a desk with lighting. You guys are out there in the dark without a desk writing on your knees. And some of you have the best handwriting. <laughs> Seriously, it looks painstakingly written. I, I love this. Well, anyway. you know, they used, to but, teach but cur- the they used to teach cursive in school back, right. in, back in the day. Right? But what's the content, John? That's the question. <laughs> Is that appropriate? Well, some of it doesn't like what you guys have been saying about immigration. Uh, okay. Um, but uh, and, and one, I'll just take part of one uh, because we're running out of time. President Obama was in Berlin recently, and uh, he said that not all people who are for enforcing immigration laws are racist. How do you reconcile that with what we've been talking about tonight? Um, and I mean, I think that's totally true. I mm-hmm. mean, I, like, I think the question is the policies that the president has been pushing, which are outside of the law, not whether the people who are enforcing them. Right. I mean, that's you see that in every sort of society. Right. It's it's the the policymakers and the people writing the laws that you raise questions about, not the people necessarily carrying out that. Um, yeah. yeah. And Andrew, Andrew Sullivan has pointed out that uh, Emmanuel Macron, France, uh Forgetting her name, uh, Adern, Ardern in uh, New Zealand. Oh, yeah. Prime Minister, I mean, both of them have been pretty tough on immigration. Yeah, yeah. As was Barack Obama. Yes. Well, he was getting rid of people that had criminal convictions, you know, violent criminals, which I totally agree with. Yeah. I mean, frankly, the fact that so many people are coming in is a problem. The fact that these people are doing jobs that Americans won't do is not the problem. The problem is when you have people, and I'm going to go do a bob here, the sanctuary laws that say that I can't call the cop, I can't call immigration if I have somebody who I know is here illegally and has just committed a a violent felony. Well, that's not actually true. It's not true, but I'm speaking in terms of the guy in San Jose that um, followed a woman into her house, broke into her house, killed her, and then he got caught because he basically got caught on home surveillance cameras and they identified him. They knew who the guy was. They actually had stopped him on Sunday and about possession of marijuana and let him go. And he killed the woman. I think it was on Monday. I can't remember the name, but he had been deported. I think something like six times, three, four, five, six times, but never for anything violent, right? Because that's what the sanctuary laws say. And I think that if he was an upstanding citizen who had gotten caught for marijuana, you would say absolutely don't deport him. Right. So it's sort of one of, what was that Tom Cruise mm-hmm. movie where we like think, know what people are, crimes they're going to commit before they do it. Like, I was going with risky business, but I think you mean minority report. <laughs> minority yeah. report. <laughs> Again, way more fun. Um, I mean, I think it's like hindsight's always twenty twenty, right. and we can say, well, that guy was a terrible person, but if, if they had not been caught for something like that, um, I mean, it certainly feeds into the narrative of, mm-hmm. I think, people who are anti-immigrant and, and, who, and who feel that what Trump's doing is the right thing to do. Um, but, I mean, I think it's, I, I, like, to, to the audience members' comment, I mean, we were talking about the leadership of these agencies, which, again, I would always differentiate from the rank and file of any um, law enforcement agency. That Those are not necessarily the same things. And, you know, you if you're... Customs and Border Patrol guy checking my passport, you're very different than Kirsten Nielsen going before Congress and defending family separations. Um, ready to there, the, there is no yeah. separation. Oh, yeah. There's no separation. There's no policy for that. Um, Just like we're in cages. On that note, and thank you all for your very clean handwriting, let's get to our news quiz. And I believe Angela is going to deliver chocolate prizes to people who get the answers right. So I'll put this here for her to pick up. 
I will ask a question. Uh, if you think you know the answer, raise your hand, then call it out when I call on you. If you are correct, Angelo will give you a little bake of chocolate. So, first question. Uh, former first daughter Jenna Bush Hager started a new job on Monday. What is she doing? There. Sorry. She's doing the fourth hour of the Today Show. That's right. She's hosting, co-hosting, actually, the fourth hour of the Today Show. What do you saying that show is just going to be like 24 hours a day? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Cheaper than scripted stuff. Well, today is 24 the hours The all-day show, yeah. 24 hours. Today is 24 <laughs> hours. President Donald Trump labeled what part of the Iranian government a terrorist entity? Ma'am, right about in the middle there? The Revolutionary Guard. That's correct. The Trump administration just canceled a deal that allowed Major League Baseball to use players from where? Your hand shot right up there, sir. Cuba. Cuba, that is correct. The deal was all of four months old. I thought it was the Giants. Oh, they're not going to use baseball players anymore. (laughs) Government and rebel forces have been waging a battle near the airport of the capital of what Middle Eastern country? Right over here. Do it, you okay, sir? Libya. Libya, that's right. Outside Tripoli. Wait, wait, wait. <laughs> Three historically black churches were burned in 10 days in what U.S. state? Way in back. Louisiana, that's correct. Um, a local official has said they were intentionally set. Another fire on March 31st occurred at a mostly white church in Louisiana, and that too reportedly was arson. Uh, when Israeli president, and I apologize if I mispronounce that, uh, Reuven Rivlin, I believe is the name, he was sent the controversial nation-state law that he and other opponents fear will lead to discrimination of Arab Israelis. When he signed it, how did he show his opposition? Did anyone see the story? Anyone want to guess? No? Okay. Um, he signed his name in Arabic. But he uh, signed it. He, well, he kind of had to sign okay. it. It's, it's either sign it or resign. So yeah. I did that on my taxes this year. <laughs> <laughs> the feds have charged two dozen people in an investigation called Operation Brace Yourself. What was the crime? <laughs> it was a healthcare-related crime, sir. Uh, Very good. That's correct. It's about it, they were selling uh, people uh, for elderly and disabled people back, neck, and knee braces that they didn't need. It was called Operation Brace Yourself, which is also the Obamacare replacement strategy. Um, Motel Six is settling a lawsuit for twelve million dollars. What were they charged with? Not leaving the light on. Way in back there. Right. They were providing uh, guest lists to the U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement. I thought they turned the light out. <laughs> now they're going to leave it on for Bob. Um, someone's name, who I believe is literally Chow, his last name is Mussolini. He's the great-grandson of the late Italian fascist dictator. He claims he was discriminated against online by who or what? A very big company, let's put it that way. Facebook, that is correct. Uh, He says Facebook discriminated against him because of his surname, and they closed his personal, uh, in the white there, closed his personal profile. For the record, the young Mussolini is running for office, and he calls himself, quote, a post-fascist who refers to those values in a non-ideological way. I have no idea. (laughs) Wow. Maybe just, like, drop the fascist part. Yeah. (laughs) Post fascist who re- refers to those ideas. Okay, I'm not even going to 
Okay, so there's a, a this is the focus of a lawsuit by a number of big companies. It's bad enough, of course, when your company goes bust. <clears throat> but in 2017, the federal government increased something by 700% for those companies. What increased 700%? A company goes bankrupt. It has to... Nobody? Okay. It's the fee that they have to pay to file for bankruptcy. Really? Yep. Okay, here's a good one. A Connecticut high school had a problem. Its baseball field was too wet to play on. So the solution someone came up with made the solution worse, or made the situation worse, and cost $50,000 in damage. What did they do to cause that? (laughs) Sorry? Please. Yes, indeed. They doused the field with gasoline and set it on fire. What could go wrong? To dry it out. Yes, you'd think this would take place in Florida, but no, it was in Connecticut. A Florida man. Yeah. Um, A bipartisan bill in the U.S. House of Representatives would forbid the IRS from doing what for U.S. citizens? That's right. It would forbid them from from offering free online uh, tax filing services. Not surprisingly, this bill was heavily lobbied against by TurboTax and H&R Block. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Okay, um, two more. Okay. An official from the Missouri Farm Bureau has issued a red alert to farmers as a result of his experience eating what new fast food product? Right, the Impossible impossible Whopper at Burger King. Yes. He said, this is not just another disgusting tofu burger that only a dedicated hippie could convince himself to eat. Okay, last one, and that's too easy. So we'll go with my single favorite story of the day, week, month. We learned this week that during a VIP tour with French President Macron, President Trump said about a dead leader, quote, If he was smart, he would have put his name on it. You've got to put your name on stuff or no one remembers you. Who was Trump talking about right there along the wall? No, no. Back there, ma'am. George Washington. And Mount Vernon. They were touring Mount Vernon. And uh, the... Because nobody remembers who George Washington is. Who? Exactly. (laughs) Yes. The tour guide hopefully pointed out that uh, George Washington did manage to get... Washington, D.C. named after him. (laughs) Oh, well. Well, we'll have a lot more news quiz questions, more opportunities to win some chocolate on Monday, May 6th for our next week-to-week, and you can find our week-to-week news quiz online at our website. Thanks to our panel today, Bob Butler, Marisa Lagos, Chuck Nevius. Thanks to all of you here in person and listening online or watching. Have a great week. Thank you.